This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actionable ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Mountain Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Jay Jacob. Jay started working for Mars Incorporated back in 2007. While at Mars, he co-led the Economics of Mutuality Initiative. He's the co-author of the EOM book, uh, Completing Capitalism, and is the co-author of a new book called Putting Purpose into Practice, The Economics of Mutuality. Jay spent 14 years in the Mars Global Headquarters and now serves as the Chief Advocacy Officer for the EOM movement for the EOM Foundation. His doctorate is from Oxford University. He has a master's from the University of Lancaster and did his undergraduate work at American University. Our discussion today uh, will include some areas around the economics of mutuality, a new business model, innovation and economic school of thought started by Mars Incorporated, a family-owned privately held corporation that I think many of us will known for iconic brands such as uh, M&Ms. And uh, we'll also talk about how the economics of mutuality works in practice and how it compares to impact investing and other strategies that aim to provide social good while reaching other financial goals. We'll also talk about how EOM uh, could be applied to various sectors and stages of businesses and, of course, to how it could be applied to running a family office. So let's get started. Jay, thanks again for joining. And uh, let's set the stage for the discussion. Uh, The economics of mutuality have their origins in a very well-known family. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about how I got started? I sure can. And thanks for inviting me on the program. Delighted to be here with you. So uh, at Mars Incorporated, about 18 months before the last global financial crisis in 2008, uh, in late 2006, uh, John Mars, who is the leader of one of the three branches of the Mars uh, family that owns Mars Incorporated, uh, actually asked his CEO at that time a very unusual question coming from a shareholder, which was, what should the right level of profit be for the company? And I say that this is an unusual question because shareholders would maybe only think about that in terms of getting the answer of as much profit as you could possibly squeeze out of the value chain. But actually, John was asking a very different kind of question and expecting a different uh, answer as well, that he was thinking about the uh, company being only as strong as the weakest link in the value chain. And that if you started to take too much profit, that you would wind up creating kind of a squeezing effect from one value chain partner squeezing another and another. This would create some sort of disequilibrium that would actually disadvantage Mars Incorporated. So he was really looking for for not the typical answer that you would get uh, from Wall Street, uh, but really something bigger than that. And when that question was handed over to the chief economist of the company, who actually was the leader of the internal think tank at Mars, uh, where where I worked, uh, we we pondered this question and and uh, and actually thought, is this a new question or is this a really old question? And we were just reminded of kind of the wisdom of King Solomon from thousands of years ago, when he actually said, a man may give freely and still his wealth will be increased, and another may keep back more than his right, but only comes to be in need. So actually, people have been thinking about this idea of the right level profit for a long time. And economics and mutuality was what we wound up calling it because really it was centered on one of the five core principles uh, that Mars operates uh, by, uh, that being 
the mutuality principle really defined more as reciprocity, not as wealth distribution, redistribution, uh, really that reciprocally beneficial relationships create more resilient and more performant business activities. And so I guess you could say uh, EOM, as we call economics of mutuality, was a, a new business model based on age-old principles to really kind of codify and action mutuality throughout a business. So thanks, Jay. And, and in terms of the, the Mars family that, that you discussed, how, how involved are they in the economics of mutuality uh, in, in its current form? And are you working on this with other family businesses and, and family offices? Yeah, thanks for the question. There are actually three branches of the Mars family that together own uh, the corporation. And actually, uh, the, the Mars family and leadership of the company allowed the internal think tank to spin out uh, on August 1st of last year. So we're actually outside the company now in an independent EOM foundation uh, that owns a, um, a, a EOM solutions consultancy, but still the Mars uh, family and leadership is is involved in, in our activities. Uh, in addition to John Mars's uh, branch of the family, since Jar- John's question actually set us off on this pathway, uh, Jackie Mars, one of the uh, the other family members who uh, whose branch of the family owns a third of the shares, uh, she has a son named Stephen Badger. Stephen has twice served as the Mars incorporated chairman of the board, and he's been a longtime advocate uh, of economics and mutuality inside Mars since day one. He recently finished his uh, term last year as Mars chairman and actually became the founding chairman of the EOM Foundation. So uh, while the foundation is independent of the company, it's supported by it, and having uh, Stephen embedded uh, as the uh, the chairman of the board of the foundation, you know, there's that, that very... Uh, strong link back to that part of the family. And then your, your second question, I think, was about family offices. And uh, and to the extent that we're working with family offices or other family businesses, Mars, of course, is, a, is an entirely family-owned, privately held uh, concern. And uh, since we have spun outside of Mars now, we're, we're definitely um, uh, involved in engaging a number of family offices and also family businesses that include some holding groups that are owned by high net worth families that are increasingly uh, keen to learn about economics of mutuality and to see uh, its applicability. Uh, and some uh, are harboring the hypothesis, uh, as are we, that this actually is a, a more complete and, and relevant form of investing, uh, or it could be, uh, than traditional ESG type of models. And, uh, you know, family offices seek, as you know, investment frameworks and approaches that reflect their values, financial returns being uh, one dimension, but not necessarily all the dimensions. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of um, application for this, uh, and there will be increasing interest among family offices as they learn more about it uh, as we move forward. And in fact, I'm actually... Um, uh, advising one uh, one family office uh, in a pro bono way, but also engaged uh, through networks of other family offices to just uh, make sure that I I can I can share this approach as we're working with some partners in the private equity space to uh, convert the model from a business model management innovation tested within the finance, within the FMCG space in a food and beverage company and actually convert it into an investment framework that can actually speak uh, to to investors. Well, uh, thanks, Jay. That's a, that's a helpful background in terms of the family's involvement and the other families you're talking to. Let's dive into the economics of mutuality itself. I think uh, let's start with first principles. What What is EOM? Yeah, thanks for that question as well. Uh, you know, when I first talk to people uh, who haven't heard anything about economics or mutuality before, especially kind of groups of, of CSO or C- CFOs of corporations, I kind of start by saying that, 
you know, the purpose of business is actually not to create profit. And that kind of gets some stunned silence at first. And then I go on to say the purpose of business, the purpose of business is actually to create profitable solutions to the problems of people and planet, not to profit by creating problems for people and planet. So really what the economics of mutuality is about in its most simple terms is really about aligning the company's purpose and management behavior and incentive systems in ways that actually can deliver a superior form of holistic value creation that actually also includes financial returns, uh, even in the short term. And it's something that uh, puts purpose into practice uh, at the business unit level through new metrics like social capital, human capital, and natural capital, which are other forms of value, just like financial capital is, but businesses tend to only manage what they measure and they tend not to really know how to measure and mobilize social, human, and natural capital. But also we've developed new management practices to deploy uh, this new thinking and approach. And what we're doing um, maybe is, could be understood as repositioning the company from just extracting values from its value from its stakeholders uh, for its own profit uh, for its shareholders to actually orchestrating solutions to stakeholder problems and challenges to create business ecosystems around purpose that are actually um, much more conducive to the flourishing of entrepreneurialism within that business ecosystem, which actually drives greater returns that are also financial. So that's how I'd kind of define it in its most simplest form. That gives a good framework in terms of the alignment, but uh, how does it work, especially for a large organization uh, like Mars? How, how does how do you put something like that into play? Yeah, the first thing I should I should point out is that this is not uh, about altruism. It's not um, it's not something that is. Uh, meant to be a corporate social responsibility initiative or a CSR initiative or, or a sustainability initiative. It's really meant from the very beginning to be very practical and uh, and really very much around a business model innovation. So we start with purpose, again, as I mentioned earlier, but it being at the center of every business activities ecosystem. So if you think about an ecosystem almost being like a solar system, uh, typically, Traditionally, firms think of themselves and their profit as being at the center of the of the business activities ecosystem, and the ecosystem is then populated with stakeholders from whom, like spokes on a wheel, the uh, the firm can extract value and turn that into profit for itself. Well, we actually start by kind of blowing up that that paradigm and uh, and saying that it should be the sense of shared purpose that needs to be at the center of every business ecosystem. That that business activity has a purpose it's trying to deliver, and it's the purpose that actually is the right lens through which um, you can determine what the right stakeholders are that you want to populate that ecosystem with. And, and kind of in a way, if I could if I could just say, uh, you know, I'm a historian by interest in training, so I, t- I tend to think way back sometimes and thinking forward. And Nicholas Copernicus was a 16th century uh, astronomer who came up with this crazy idea that actually was the sun that was at the center of the uh, universe and not the uh, earth. And as soon as he kind of figured that out, then all the mathematics made sense. So we kind of think of this uh, uh, as an analogy for, uh, it's like a Copernican revolution, economics and mutuality, this idea of putting purpose at the center of an ecosystem, not the firm. So once we, uh, once we have that settled with the, with the business and they understand that concept and are willing to work with us, then we need to make that purpose actionable at a unit level. And we call that kind of, um, of articulating the purpose 
of the uh, of the business unit as what we call a meaningful challenge. So it's kind of an outside in perspective that solves the problem of someone else. It doesn't just describe what your activity is as a business, or it doesn't just make a value statement that's not actionable. So as an example, at Mars, it's it's you know it's fine at the corporate purpose level, uh, like Mars does, to have something that's a bit more uh, values driven. And at Mars, it's the world we want tomorrow starts with how we do business today, which is great. But at a business unit level, it doesn't actually uh, help you deliver uh, what the what that purpose is. So we worked with one of the units just as an illustrative example uh, called Royal Canin, a nutraceutical uh, pet food um, multinational company based in France. And we crafted a, an actionable purpose that's consistent or aligned with the corporate purpose that basically is improving the lives of cats and dogs. Uh, another example would be um, of a company that's not necessarily uh, working with us uh, on economics mutuality, but they're they're working beside us in a way uh, in the same kind of purpose space, Novo Nordisk, which is a big um, a Scandinavian insulin company. And I think it might be interesting to your uh, to your listeners to know that, you know, they had as a purpose for many years selling more insulin. So it described what they did. And they came up with a, a, the realization that taking up an outside-in approach rather than an inside-out approach uh, could actually change their, their, their business approach and how they were perceived. And they changed it to solving diabetes from selling more insulin. And that completely altered its relationship with its stakeholders. And it really elevated Novo Nordisk uh, in, uh, with its partners uh, as as a, a, uh, a kind of a real thought partner in treating the root cause of the challenge that they were in business to address rather than simply making a lot of profit off treating the symptoms. And their business actually took off because their stakeholders, which included their customers, really wanted to work with Novo Nordis because they saw they had the right purpose, the right intent. So we use the purpose as a lens through to identify who the stakeholders are uh, around uh, that that business purpose uh, to work with the company uh, on whatever its activity is, and then we map those stakeholders out in economics and mutuality to to um, to then set up interviews uh, of subsets of the stakeholders to surface what we call pain points. So, what are the things that are obstructing or hindering each of the key stakeholders in that ecosystem from delivering their part of the uh, of the shared purpose that's brought them together? Uh, very simply, then we kind of prioritize with the business unit the two or three key pain points that we, that we want to internalize to improve the performance of that ecosystem. We then craft interventions to grow either the social, human, or natural capital or financial capital that uh, could ameliorate or mitigate whatever that pain point is, that problem, and depending on what the nature of the problem is. And then by growing what the right form of capital is to heal whatever type of pain point you're addressing among the stakeholders, it makes the stakeholder um, more performant. So as stakeholders are healed of these pain points, just like athletes who are injured uh, could be healed of, of their injury, then they start to perform better and the ecosystem actually performs much more um, uh, robustly. And we see coming out the other end, a uh, holistic um, uh, performance outcomes that are superior, including financial returns, even in the short term. And then the last piece of how this works is uh, we we know that the that the PNL statement, the management accounts, is really like a filter for the purpose, and it sets the um, the uh, incentive system for managers to behave a certain way. And if the PNL in the management accounts is purely financial in nature, it's going to drive certain types of management behaviors that are often not in alignment with delivering what the company says its purpose is. And we find that companies that actually do align their purpose with their practice are 
uh, superior performers in all ways. So we've created a, another line in the in the PL to compare with financial profit, which we call mutual profit, where we've been able to calculate uh, with some accuracy what the impact on natural resources are of that business activity on human and social capital as well. And by just creating that additional level of transparency, it starts different kinds of business conversations that better align the incentive system to delivering the purpose of the company. So in a nutshell, that's how it works in practice. I do like your analogy of sort of the, the, the change in thought of the Copernican revolution there. It almost was before that it was, uh, you know, they're twisting the models to, to make it fit their observations. Well, this this analogy really really speaks to me because uh, I think there's a natural order of things uh, in everything that we do in life, and that includes the economy. And uh, I know you and I have talked in the past about, you know, maybe that natural order uh, for the global economy is supposed to be financial capital being very important, but being at the base of the system, there to support the economy, which through business supports the planet and ultimately its people at the top of the system. But after after sort of 50 years now um, of financial capitalism and really the uh, kind of a rudimentary form of capitalism that only focuses on money and on the, the accumulation of, of, of money, that actually we have inverted that natural order of things. And now we have people in the planet at the bottom uh, who are supporting the economy, which their business is supporting finance, which is, if anything, supporting itself. And that is a, 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 that is a uh, distortion of the natural order that I think is uh, is really being challenged today as we have new forms of scarcity, uh, like uh, natural resources and talent matching the jobs being created in the, in the new type of economy. And we have a, a global surplus uh, dysfunctionally of, uh, of financial capital that's even causing negative interest rates. So I think uh, EOM is there to help accelerate the um, the return of the natural order of the economy and really make the, the economy more aligned with the rules of the game of the new economy that we're in now, which is like a knowledge economy or a sharing economy, one that's characterized by a digital economy. And that has very different rules of the game than the financial economy that we just came out of. Businesses, though, are very slow to adapt to this. So, uh, so they really need to to significantly upgrade the model. And that's why I wrote a book with our chief economist at Mars a few years ago called Completing Capitalism. And the choice of that name was uh, entirely intentional because really we're looking at economics of mutuality as creating a more complete form of capitalism that also expands the definition of business performance beyond just financial returns to include uh, holistic value creation uh, for communities, for individuals in terms of their well-being and, and for the planet as well. Jay, in terms of something that you, you mentioned earlier around impact investing, I mean, that's an industry that has matured greatly, I'd say probably faster in, in, in Europe than in North America, but it's an industry that still struggles to find effective means to, to measure non-financial success metrics, never mind trying to aggregate those and, and, and study them broadly. I know people have made great strides in that area, so... It's certainly not nascent, but it's not easy, uh, whether that's impact investing or philanthropy. What research have you done for economic, for the economics of mutuality uh, to help you know evaluate its effectiveness? Because I know you've put a lot of academic and, and research rigor into this program. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, too. And, you know, the, the space is very crowded, especially on the investment side, with lots of different metrics that also allow companies to kind of pick and choose what makes them look the best. And that's not always the most objective way to identify 
what the metrics are that actually are the true drivers of value creation uh, in a company. So, you know, we, we spent, um, as we were working on this as one of a number of different projects, uh, when we kicked it off in, at the start of 2007, you know, we took a metrics-based approach right from the outset and tried to, uh, to really uh, minimize the number of metrics that uh, would optimize uh, value creation across the different forms of capital. And, um, you know, you asked for what, what research was done on to, to evaluate its effectiveness. Practical application and data in, from real business activities uh, is really um, driving our, our findings in this work. So um, first, a, a quick point about the, about the metrics and why the value creation metrics are so important to get down to those and to really focus on those is that we realize that you know, you only manage what you measure in business. So if you only have a set of metrics to to measure and manage one form of capital, you're really going to leave a lot of value as a business on the table, just like you would as an investor as well. And businesses create, uh, destroy, and uh, could mobilize for the benefit of stakeholders and shareholders, these non-financial forms of capital that I've been calling social, human, and natural capital. And we have a way to define those, that uh, they've been leaving that a lot of that value on the table, squandering it and operating suboptimally just because they don't know how to measure it in simple, stable, robust ways. So when we crack that after spending about five years actually of this work initially, working on on just the metrics piece, uh, we thought we had something here that was simple, stable, robust, externally peer reviewed. So we knew the science was good and that that could work just as, as well in a business as um, as you could manage uh, financial uh, financial kind of uh, performance metrics. And then we, we made another breakthrough, which is that we discovered through our work in the field that and research that there was a very strong correlation, maybe even causality, between the amount of social, human, or natural capital you have around a business activity and how much economic performance would increase or decrease, and that would also relate, release more financial performance. So this was critical because this really made this very business practical to use social, human, and natural capital uh, and the metrics that underlie those three forms of capital to actually uh, grow them to drive greater economic uh, performance. So, you know, economics of mutuality is a business model management innovation. It's not a theory, although we have a management theory behind it now. We partnered with Oxford University so that we can develop curriculum uh, and, uh, and do more research to fill the gaps. But really, it's about practical application. And because we have data that's now coming from real economics and mutuality driven business activities, we're actually seeing that uh, EOM can deliver superior form uh, can, can deliver superior financial performance, even in the short term, along with holistic performance around communities, individuals, and uh, and the environment. That said, it's it's not an easy task when you're growing social, human, and natural capital to to heal a, a business ecosystem and make it more performant, to tie those dots of those interventions directly to, uh, to a quantitative outcome uh, on performance. So we're working on that uh, with the business units, but one of the first businesses, actually the first business that we set up purely based on economics and mutuality metrics, KPIs, you know, key performance indicators, things that managers have to deliver to get their bonuses, uh, and also on, uh, on EOM management practices. It was a micro distribution route to market business set up from scratch alongside the Wrigley chewing gum business in East Africa in Nairobi, Kenya. And we were allowed to work in only the impoverished slum areas around Nairobi, Kenya that are the largest slums in all of Africa. And this business really was having to operate completely out of the box in terms of um, unorthodox 
uh, business approaches because of the conditions inside these uh, impoverished communities that were really difficult to to operate in in any sort of traditional way. And so uh, just to cut to the chase, because maybe later we can talk more about how this uh, business was set up specifically, if your, reader, if your listeners would be interested. But we were able in this business in a very short period of time to uh, have to deliver two times the retained earnings in uh, in this approach than the neighboring route to market business for the same product that was actually using master distribution, working with wealthier consumers uh, that had greater brand recognition, that had easier infrastructure, all those traditional things you do with a profit maximizing approach. We were outperforming them with this putting purpose into practice kind of um, uh, approach using non-financial uh, KPIs in a business in the slums where there's no financial capital, no visible human capital, no visible natural capital and some social capital, but not a lot. We were able to develop a business that actually outperforms by two times in terms of the retained earnings, the neighboring business. So that's scaled up very quickly. Uh, the, the company is actually uh, Wrigley's, which is part of Mars, is scaling it up uh, to a number of other countries uh, globally. And so that's some evidence that we're putting forward. We've also done some work for a uh, for uh, an outside firm uh, in a proof of concept way, one of the largest multinational retail groups in the world This happens to be based in France. And we just did some basic proof of concept work for them where we were able to determine uh, in, uh, in a relatively simple way uh, that, that their uh, distribution retail outlets that were located in areas where the ecosystem of stakeholders actually had a higher level of social and human capital, the stores were performing uh, in a very superior way to those outlets where the, the social and human capital was lower. Uh, so as a result of that, that kind of simple proof of concept pilot, that, that multinational retail group has engaged us now to do a much more substantial piece of work. Certainly some of the elements that you've, you've talked about um, uh, have crossover to other strategies that families and, uh, and, and businesses and family offices and businesses have put into place stakeholder capitalism, impact investing, SRI, ESG, uh, strategies around balanced scorecard. How similar or how different uh, is the economics of mutuality when you're looking at these strategies and are, and are there elements that are congruent and, and maybe some new things that uh, you've, you've taken with your research uh, that can take those uh, you know, those types of strategies to the next level. Yeah, well, stakeholder capitalism is kind of a very broad term. And I would actually say economics of mutuality is is kind of a, a very practical, tested, advanced form of stakeholder capitalism that that is um, now, you know, ready to be utilized in, in, uh, in as a business model itself. So it has a lot in common with what you, one would call stakeholder capitalism, uh, although I guess there's a lot of different initiatives that people tend to call stakeholder capitalism that may not actually have a practical you know, business model with metrics and managed practices yet. Impact investing, uh, on the other hand, really is about investors that often include family offices as well, being willing to accept a concessionary return, knowing that they're going to get more leverage to reach, to achieve whatever their their uh, their interest is, uh, whether it's philanthropic or or uh, or other, in um, uh, in in making uh, the right types of investments. And so, in a way, impact investing is is great, but it's uh, inherently suboptimal because it operates on the premise that you have to trade some profit to do some good for people and planet. And actually, if uh, if, you, if you compare DOM to a traditional sustainability or corporate social responsibility type of initiative in a company, 
you know, those things are, are very good as well, but they also uh, are different from ELM because they also require or assume that you have to trade profit to do some good for people and planet. And when you do that, then you are automatically um, limiting that activity to something that is uh, maybe not profitable enough to be self-sustaining, which in a business activity is the uh, prerequisite to be scalable, which is then the prerequisite to be transformational in the way a business uh, operates or, or an investment uh, for that matter. So what we've discovered really is that you can you can optimize and maybe even maximize your, um, your returns uh, in a holistic way, but including financial returns by um, by changing the way you uh, you operate from extracting value to solving problems to growing the non-financial forms of value to solve the pain points of your ecosystem partners and we believe that this can be translated successfully into uh, to the investment space and we have backers actually from the private equity space in particular that have really uh, this has kind of seized their imagination and they uh, they have decided that they want to um, uh, work with us to translate uh, what is a what is a business model that's tested in that FMCG space, as I mentioned earlier, in a food and beverage and retail kind of context, change that into an investment framework that really speaks uh, to investors. But that's that lack of trade-offs issue, I think, is one of the most important things to remember about economics and mutuality, because you don't have to limit yourself to trading profit to do some good for people and planet. We know for a fact that greater levels of social, human, and natural capital, if you can drive those things up intentionally, uh, that uh, they're going to deliver more financial returns. Uh, so there really is no need for a trade-off there. I'm curious, you know, one of the areas as well uh, could be around uh, sectors. Does a strategy like this work in all uh, different types of, have you tested it out in different se- sectors, businesses and sizes of companies and and certainly regulatory environments, um, you know, are, are things to, to put in, whether in your highly regulated industry or, or, or not. Have you, has your team tested the effectiveness of, of this and how does it work in, in those different types of environments? Well, this is precisely the reason why Mars actually let us take the IP around this uh, outside of the company and to put it inside an independent foundation and to set up this consultancy that has no shareholders that, that uh, is owned by the foundation. Because there was a realization really from the outset that um, economics and mutuality is what I guess in business we'd call a non-rival good, so that it actually would benefit Mars more by sharing it openly than just trying to um, to uh, keep it uh, in-house. Uh, and so we need to have the freedom to work within different sectors and with different sizes uh, of companies and in different regulatory environments uh, to, to actually um, increase the learnings. Somebody once said that the beauty is in the journey, uh, and I would actually uh, agree with that and also say we're very much on, on the on a journey here of, of learnings, because economics and mutuality is also uh, contextual. So it's not necessarily, I believe it's very replicable and there's a lot that we can standardize in it, but it's not sort of just like a, a McKinsey style template, for example, where it's one size fits all. Uh, actually, uh, each sector in each type of a company is going to have a slightly different context. And we're working with other companies now that we're on the outside to, uh, to, to adapt to those different contexts. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, we of course did the bulk of work on economics and mutuality in Mars itself in a diversified, but still food and beverage uh, oriented uh, FMCG context. We have done uh, a little work in the, uh, in the retail space that's uh, ramping up. We're now moving into the financial space and we have the right people helping us convert the model into an investment framework so that we can demonstrate through, uh, through a private equity fund 
that is set up that is going to be set up just to acquire uh, SMEs uh, from different sectors, probably high technology, healthcare, and environmental care at first, uh, and then those those assets that will be acquired through the through the fund will be turned over to uh, the EOM uh, platform to uh, to transform using these concepts that I uh, that I talked about earlier. Um, so we're we're moving step by step into different sectors of the economy. We have negotiations uh, going with uh, with a whole range of different um, uh, groups that are in different sectors of the economy, including a large uh, bank in Southeast Asia and uh, and so forth. So so we're getting there, but it's going to take uh, a little bit of time to to collect uh, all of those findings. Um, as far as sizes of companies go, uh, I think. Um, you know, when I, Mars is a very discreet company. So for a long time, we weren't allowed to talk about it outside the company. And I remember uh, years ago, the first time I was really allowed to speak in a kind of semi-public way, it was in a room full of, um, of um, people who were st- doing startup businesses. And I remember one of them stood up and, and, and then just asked me the question up on stage uh, that, okay, this is all fine and good for a big multinational corporation like Mars, you know, but what about for the little guy, for, for a new startup, you know, how could this be uh, uh, relevant to me? And, and I kind of, I hadn't expected that question, but I kind of laughed. Uh, and because I realized as I answered the question that, that uh, you know, it's much harder to, uh, to move a battleship uh, or a super tanker uh, and to get managers who are inculcated in uh, certain behaviors and management practices that they've been taught all their lives that they learned in business school uh, that are on this kind of more rudimentary form of financial capitalism that we've all been operating under for so long and to open up their minds to uh, to accepting a new way of doing this uh, than it is to kind of start from a clean slate. And, and I find fundamentally, because this is a superior form of value creation that actually is more aligned with the rules of the game of the current economy uh, and is really about addressing forms of scarcity that didn't exist when financial capitalism was created. Uh, you know, when financial capitalism cre- was created, the form of scarcity was created to address was money. There wasn't enough in the global economy. Plenty of natural resources, plenty of uh, of labor. We have exactly the reverse now after 50 years because financial capitalism was so successful. You know, we now have too much money and we have not enough social, human, and natural capital. Uh, and we need to, to kind of make that adjustment and that would would work for any company of any size and in any sector conceptually. Now, can I prove that yet? No, because we haven't worked in each one of these sectors yet and with all different sizes of companies, but that's the direction we're headed. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, your, your comments on the a smaller company or even a, a you know, thinking of a, a tech startup, right? Where it's, you're operating on a shoestring and you're, you're focused on uh, a very concrete and mission and, uh, and and then with a small amount of uh, people doing it, that this this could be interesting to see what your research says about that that area because that's a that's that's certainly a piece that that could come up. What about uh, what about family offices? You mentioned that uh, you advise uh, a, a few family offices uh, on this and other matters. Have you seen family offices look at uh, economics and mutuality in terms of their operations? Because of this um, you know, work that we're doing to to turn economics and mutuality into an investment framework, this has just brought me into uh, uh, into proximity with and contact with uh, just dozens of of family offices uh, through uh, groupings of family offices and also through individual family offices that are just interested in in this approach and whether or not they can they can get involved in um, uh, in, in maybe. Uh, making investments once we set up this uh, this fund with this outside uh, private equity partner, 
Uh, so I'm learning a lot about this space, and I can't say that I know everything about family offices at this point in time. And I guess um, its uh, applicability to actually running a family office would depend in part on the size and activities of the family office and how one would define it. Uh, for example, I know uh, that a family office in the Middle East, for example, includes both a, an investment and an operating company type of um, a portfolio of activities that are just combined into one platform, which may make it a little more obvious how to how to how to implement EOM. Uh, and in the U.S., a family office in many cases uh, is often often thinly staffed, and uh, and their asset allocators really have funds to third-party asset managers. So I guess it really depends in part upon the scope of the activities and the assets of the family office platform of exactly how efficiently EOM could be applied to the family office itself. But but right now I'm kind of looking at family offices as trying to look at something that um, will help meet their their purpose really for uh, for making their investments. And so I know family offices are very uh, very much uh, hungry for. Uh, ESG type investments, of impact type of investments. But I think there's also a, a great deal of realism among family offices, at least the ones that I've talked to, that there's a lot of greenwashing in the ESG space, in part because there's just so many different kinds of, of metrics and, and it's not clear which ones of those metrics are actually the, the drivers of value creation. And so, um, so you tend to get uh, ESG investments um, lending themselves to, uh, to, to feeling good uh, rather than delivering the kind of transformational types of returns that family office investors may be looking for. And I think we have something that's, that's uh, kind of a diamond in the rough, I guess I would say, and is a way in which maybe we can, we can help family offices deliver on uh, what they say they're, they're, their purpose is, but to do so in a way that also gives them superior financial returns. So getting back to an earlier uh, discussion that we had, and part of this discussion uh, that we had was about practical application. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could walk us through an example of a practical example that, that doesn't start with something that was from scratch, like maybe something that was an ongoing concern and how you uh, implemented this. I think that would be an, an interesting example of sort of the thought process that goes into the alignment that you mentioned, because I think many business owners and family offices are, are, are thinking about the, in, the practical, how, can, how could they uh, do that? And I think some of your thinking around how you set up the alignment and, and what those actually are, uh, it could be very interesting to hear. Sure, well, we worked with, uh, with a, a large and growing number of Mars business units, but I think maybe the, the most interesting, just for if I could give one example, because uh, I know we're limited in, on our time here, is uh, really that Royal Canin uh, nutraceutical pet food business that I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier in our conversation. Uh, Royal Canin was uh, was acquired um, probably I don't know about 15 years ago by by Mars Incorporated and uh, and integrated very well and it really became uh, really the, the the fastest growing you know most profitable crown jewel type of asset inside the Mars uh, pet care portfolio. Pet care being the largest segment uh, at Mars, even though uh, Mars is tend to known to be Better known for its kind of iconic chocolate brands, uh, but but Royal Canin uh, and its uh, really inspired uh, leadership, you know, they they grow at double digits every year, and they're just they outperform every other every other unit in the portfolio. And uh, and as we started sharing more with the president of Royal Canin, a guy by the name of Loic Mouteau, uh, Frenchman, uh, he started to uh, to to really get excited about the fact that that um, economics of mutuality might be a model that would allow him to codify. Uh, a way that Royal Canin was doing business that was very much driven by 
the social capital that it had with its uh, distribution network and its stakeholders, including its uh, clients. And what I mean by that is, you know, Royal Canin, it's very, very expensive. It's a very premiumized kind of brand because it's so nutritious for pets. So in Europe, for example, if you wanted to buy a bag of, of dog food, a Royal Canin, you might have to pay 80 euros for, for, uh, for a bag of this. But because it's so healthy for the, for the animal, that, um, that, that Royal Canin finds that, that it's, they, they don't even have to invest very much at all in advertising, uh, that actually it's, it's stakeholders like veterinarians and breeders, for example, that wind up uh, promoting the product because it's in their interest and in the interest of, of their clients for their pets to be uh, to, to be healthier and to, to uh, have a more nutritious outcome. And he, Loic had never really thought of that. He had never articulated it as social capital per se. Economics and mutuality kind of brought a new language, a new vernacular uh, about how you, you look at different forms of capital. But he got excited about this because he said, at one point he said, you know, the biggest challenge I have is that, you know, we're a non-traditional business and sometimes in the way that we operate because we realize that this, what you call social capital, this trust, this social cohesiveness, the capacity to work collectively towards a common good or an outcome, that this this is so important to the way uh, we do business that when I bring in managers from other parts of the uh, of the organization, uh, they they immediately start to kind of bring the old traditional ways of managing, and it kind of breaks and disrupts my uh, my model, and I have to kind of. Uh, figure out a way around that. So that's a kind of a long way of, of saying that uh, that it was a, almost a natural fit to work with Royal Canin on this. And we're, we've been working for a number of years now on, on really a full scope uh, economics and mutuality uh, uh, work within within that business globally. And the way we really started was with the purpose piece, as I mentioned before. And we we managed to to work with Royal Canin to to uh, articulate a purpose, uh, improving the health of pets and dogs that act, or of cats and dogs that actually was uh, actionable at a business unit level that gave us the right lens through which we could work with that with that unit to determine who the true stakeholders were. So stakeholders included like the breeders and the veterinarians that I talked about before, the retailer outlets, the pet owners themselves and, 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 and others. Uh, and once we mapped out that ecosystem for Royal Canin, we then went about um, identifying a subset of, um, of key stakeholder individuals that we could interview that would give us kind of the robust amount of data that we needed to surface in an objective way what the what the pain points were among each of those key stakeholders. Then we came back to uh, Royal Canoon and, and work with their managers to kind of prioritize what those pain points are, to categorize them. To, so if there was kind of a breakdown of trust as there was between the veterinarians and the breeders, because the, the veterinarians go to school like medical doctors and they and yet they kind of resent the breeders because the breeders don't have that education, but the pet owners tend to listen to them just like they would listen to the veterinarian. The uh, the pet owners, uh, sorry, the breeders, on the other hand, kind of feel like they're diminished by the veterinarians. And uh, so there's some resentment there. So there's kind of a breakdown of trust, which is a key part of what we call social capital. So that pain point within the ecosystem, uh, just as an illustrative example, might be the breakdown of trust between those two stakeholder partners. Uh, that are critical, both critical to the operating of that ecosystem. So identifying those, excuse me, identifying those pain points, determining that it was a social capital pain point, creating an intervention to grow the social capital among those stakeholders to uh, heal that that problem in the ecosystem. That kind of released those stakeholders to uh, to be more performant in their delivery of the uh, shared purpose in that ecosystem, and then the performance of of the whole ecosystem and of the business itself uh, was 
uh, better uh, than it was before those interventions to solve those pain points. And that translates into better financial performance as well. So, so this is kind of how we're in a, in a rudimentary way of explaining how we're working with, with a particular um, you know, premiumized business unit. Uh, when we started this from scratch, it was a, a very different kind of uh, learning experience and a very um, business hostile environment. And I say business hostile in that, you know, a lot of the ways that you could operate uh, in a demographic that uh, you know had had no money and none of the real other forms of capital to work with, uh, you have to kind of take somewhat different approaches, but still the principles are the same. They're about identifying the stakeholders, which in that business activity really were uh, were uh, uh, partners that actually had the social capital with impoverished people living in those communities that a, a Western multinational would not have. So we'd had to work with citizen sector organizations and bring them into the value chain, like an NGO that was there uh, to uh, lift unemployed single mothers out of poverty. And so, uh, we liked unemployed single mothers because they actually made pretty responsible um, micro distributors of chewing gum in this route to market business. And the pain point that we were having ourselves was we didn't have access to these people because the company didn't have any social capital in those communities. The pain point for the uh, citizen sector NGO was that they just didn't have enough good job opportunities that provided enough wage for these women to really make a big difference. So we were naturally able to partner and help resolve one another's pain points. Just another quick illustrative example in that case was was a, a microfinance lender that was in the impoverished community and was failing to deliver its mission because it couldn't figure out how to issue enough microloans to people that had nothing uh, to collateralize, uh, and they and couldn't be sure that they weren't going to just you know spend the money and not invest it in a way that would be better for the family and the community. So they got very excited when we came to them and said, "Look, uh, our." Micro distributors need to be able to get a micro loan so they have enough money to buy a bicycle with a basket on it so they can pedal out to a stop point, pick up the chewing gum, bring it in, and start to distribute it to uh, kiosk owners that are distributors uh, that actually know who they are. And um, the microfinance lender said, you know, this is great because we can use the mere fact of a Western multinational uh, training these people and bringing them into a route to market program as a proxy for uh, for collateral, so we will give a micro loan to every one of these people. So we orchestrated a solution to that micro lender's pain point. The micro lender orchestrated a solution to the pain point of the of the uh, of the impoverished um, uh, micro distributor because they didn't have any credit, and we benefited from uh, from that uh, dynamic by then suddenly having uh, uh, people who actually were equipped in the program to do what they needed to do. And so this is kind of how we uh, how we operate. And uh, just to a quick point to the KPIs, you know, uh, key performance indicators are, are almost all uh, financial in nature. There's something like sales and retained earnings are the two most uh, common ones in a business. And we really, uh, when we were starting an EOM business uh, for the first time, we, we basically said, okay, look, we're going to track uh, the traditional financial KPIs. Uh, from uh, from a baseline, but we're not going to hold managers accountable for delivering those KPIs. We want those managers to deliver more human capital, more well-being in the workplace of those along the value chain of that activity. We also want you to grow the social capital, the uh, trust, social cohesiveness, and capacity to work collectively of those in the community that was hosting this business activity. And then we would track those from a baseline and see what happened. And to make a long story short, you know, uh, social and human capital growth delivered you know, double the retained earnings, as I mentioned before, and scaled up very quickly. So these are just a couple of examples about how this works. We, we work in, you know, maybe 15 other types of businesses. So we're collecting more and more learnings as we go. Jay, uh, you've been at this quite a while. 
and uh, and certainly still exploring new ways to 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 measure effectiveness of this tool and implement in different uh, different types of organizations. You know, what's the one thing that you know about uh, the economics of mutuality today that you wish you knew back when you got uh, were at the drawing board? That's a very interesting question. Um, because there's probably several things that uh, I wish I knew <laughs> when we started this that might have made it a little less painful uh, along the journey. But I guess if I had to just say one thing, uh, I think one of the biggest surprises for us as a team was that uh, when we started this, because we were thinking about this as a social business type of activity, that we thought that the natural constituent in the company uh, or in company or in other companies as well uh, for economics and mutuality would really be found among the traditional sustainability uh, type crowd, because we thought we would have some some kind of uh, fellow travelers in the space. But actually, we discovered that the natural constituency for ULM was found among the chief financial officers in the companies, not among the traditional sustainability crowd. Sustainability now is incredibly important, so I'm not trying to diminish it in any way. Uh, but because it assumes that trade-off of profit that we talked about earlier for delivering good, it's really difficult to... Um, to um, convince a CFO, for example, that they should invest more than X amount in a sustainability program that won't necessarily deliver something very tangible and quantitative in terms of uh, the, the financial returns that will then allow for that scaling. But um, but CFO, CFOs, when they see how EOM works in practice, they see that it's actually about delivering superior turns, returns by doing good instead of using your returns to do some good, if you understand the, the the difference. So I guess I wish I would have known that the CFOs were the natural constituency because we would have gone after them first. And CFOs are are amazingly effective in rolling out uh, something like this uh, because they have the power to do it. And they've got the, uh, the P&L that I talked about earlier. And the P&L creates the incentive system. So working with the CFOs, creating a mutual profit, single bottom line management accounts PL and testing that is what we're doing now. And we're finding actually it's a way to accelerate the rollout of this and the acceptance of it inside a company. Because if, if your business activity is having um, through its impact on natural resources or on uh, community uh, or on individual well-being or on community uh, trust, if you're damaging those things and this isn't accounted for in any way in your PL and those non-financial forms of capital either if they go down, act as a drag on your profitability, or if they go up, actually can enhance your profitability. You know, your, your P&L is really incomplete and that lack of transparency is a real missed opportunity. So I, I think that's probably where, where I would uh, say the biggest surprise was that I wish I would have known CFOs were the, were the place to start. Well, thank you, Jay, and, uh, for, for joining. And, and thanks to everyone one else uh, for joining and listening in today as well uh, if you'd like to get in touch uh, with Jay or if you have any questions do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com if you enjoyed today's conversation or so, so inclined you know please subscribe uh, to the channel or review us on Apple Podcasts follow us on Spotify or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts uh, as always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way you can show your support. Uh, to sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, do check out our website. That's www.dentons.com forward slash family office. That's it. Bye, everyone. Bye.